Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we look at this difficult chapter together. Give us humble hearts, please, that seek to sit under your word rather than sit over it. Give us soft hearts to hear what it is you're saying to us. In your son's name, amen. I I begin with a slight apology because last week it was pretty heavy. Um, We thought chapter 6 about the conquest of Jericho. We thought about the, the reality of Canaan and what the people were like. We thought about a God who is just and who judges. We thought about a God who is just and who judges his own people because he knows the reality of their hearts and their idolatry, prone to wander, to find rest and joy and worth and salvation in life and other gods apart from the true God. And then there were these sacred articles, remember, that they were to avoid. Come up again and again, I think the final verse is verse 24 where they're mentioned. And that was one of the sounds left ringing in our ears in chapter 6. And yet I don't apologize because it was heavy last week. I apologize because it's going to be more heavy stuff this week. If you were hoping something a bit lighter, um, a bit funnier, I'm afraid it's not going to be forthcoming because we reached chapter 7. And here's the thing, you suddenly find there was a battle going on at the Battle of Jericho last week. But it wasn't so much to do with a military battle. They, They were just blowing trumpets and marching and shouting. The battle was in their hearts. And that becomes clear as you reach 7 verse 1, and the verse begins with an ominous but. And it's a verse that ought to strike fear into our hearts. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Camri, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerar of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And you see, from the off, we're we're in on the secret. We have the advantage. We know what the issue is. The narrator tells us what Joshua only finds out halfway through. And it's, it's exactly what we were hoping wouldn't happen. And maybe it's exactly what we were expecting would happen. Because hearts wander. And because we're foolish. And you see, where we read... Accusations of God being bloodthirsty or xenophobic or vicious or unkind to surrounding nations. He's just and he's good and he's consistent with his people as well. He doesn't have double standards. It's extraordinary, but in one sense, when his people don't keep the covenant, he is true to his word and the results are messy and it's almost as if he's harsher on them. He expects more from them. I should just say before we jump in, this is why at Magdalen Road we, we generally engage in verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book exposition. We, we go through chunks of the Bible. God's given us books and so we preach through books. We vary the bits that we kind of look at, different genre, different sizes, different bits of the Bible, but we get a mixed diet and that's because we need this uncomfortable stuff. We need the chapter sevens that challenge us and that stretch us and that give us a closer perspective as to who God is. If it was just me, I would just go for the nice, easy stuff that I quite like. Or stepping on um, uh, platforms to, to talk about the things that really matter to me at that point. The stuff that our itching ears want to hear. And yet it's great that we get to Joshua chapter seven because we have to get the uncomfortable stuff in there. It makes it harder for me as a preacher. It makes it harder for us as listeners. But it really matters that we understand who God really is. 
It does us good. It strengthens us. It matures us. It grows us up. It means that God isn't just the God that I want him to be, but he's the God who's revealed himself to us in his words. And a God who never disagrees with us perhaps isn't actually the true God. So here we are in chapter 7. His people don't keep the covenant. The results are messy. Um, I've got some D's for you this morning. At first one, verse 2 to 5, defeat from the Lord. So they're in the land, and Jericho is something, as, as, um, as Matthew said to the children, is something of, a, of a, a gateway military garrison city. It's been defeated. And the next place on the, the map is this place called Ai. And it worked well in chapter 2, so they send in the spies to Ai. And back comes the report, just like in chapter 2 again, but back comes the report, verse 3, when they returned to Joshua, they said, the spies said, Do you know, not all the army will have to go up against I, send two or three thousand men to take it. Don't worry the whole army, there's only a few people there. Joshua, they're minnows. It's going to be all right. We don't have to worry too much. It's the proverbial premiership football team who are just hot on the heels of taking some massive scalp in the league and then midweek FA Cup match against lower league division They don't take them seriously, and it all goes horribly wrong. And there is something, I think, of complacency in the report that comes back. Maybe they're thinking it's just kind of clockwork. We just put in the money and out come the results. They're beginning to believe maybe the Lord is with them. They, They see they're the underdogs, but they have God on their side. He is the one who stopped the Jordan. He is the one who routed Jericho. He is the one we can trust. Maybe they're even beginning to believe their own hype slightly. So this city of Ai, it's going to be fine. Just send a couple of thousand in, you'll be good. But verse 4, so about 3,000 went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Imagine their questions. What, what just happened there? Lord, if you can deal with Jericho, if you can deal with the Jordan, were you just having an off day? Did you forget the plan of action? Where were you, Lord? Remember verse 1, we know the reason why. They don't yet. We know the camp has become unclean because sin has come in. We know what's going on. We know about Achan. We know that without God they are vulnerable. At this point, they don't. And then look at their response, verse 5. Have a look at the end of verse 5. Do you remember that language from anywhere else so far in Joshua? That's not rhetorical. I'm looking for answers. Come on. Thank you. Chapter 2, particularly with with Rahab. So it's 2.24, it's 2.9 as well. They hear from Rahab that the Canaanites have, have melted in fear before them. Because they've heard of the God of Israel. And suddenly there's this switch that goes on. Israel twigs that God was not with them. And now their hearts are melting in fear before the enemies. I want to press pause here. And I will say I will spend more time in these first five verses than the rest of the thing almost put together. So we're going to just press pause and pull back slightly. And I want to think about... Just briefly, the the nature of sin from this account, from Joshua chapter 7. And just teasing out a couple of things which 
probably hugely obvious, but now and again we just get an opportunity to have a think about these things, and it's important we do. The first thing to say is that sin is not trivial. This sin is not trivial. That is, we might read it and we might think, come on. Come on, it was just, it was just a robe, it was some silver, it was some gold. Really? Does that result in loss of life? Does it matter that much, Lord? And it feels pretty trivial. It's fair to say, as you, as you read the Old Testament, there are different grades and scales of sin and uncleanness, different responses needed for each for different people at different times and stuff. But I wonder if you look a bit more carefully at the language, you see something of what's going on. So have a look down at verse 11 with me. God says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the, the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. And then just flick over to verse 21. Another interesting word, what Achan says. Achan replied, I, I coveted them. When I saw the plunder, I coveted it. I took them. They are hidden in my ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. There are some key words there, really important words to get to grips with. They have broken this covenant with the Lord. It's not just that they have done something out there somewhere. This is profoundly relational, this sin. And specifically, the words he uses, verse 11, they have stolen and lied. Verse 21, Achan says he coveted. And again, recognize those words, stealing and lying and coveting. Where are we thinking that might come from? Ten Commandments, thank you. Core, foundational, relational issues going on here. And easily we think, well, a bit of sin is all right. It's true. It's fine. It's okay. It doesn't matter that much. We might even think, well, you know, we're okay because we're this side of the cross. God's got it covered. Thanks. It's going to be all right. But sometimes in, in episodes like this, we just get a glimpse of how much sin matters. That sin is not trivial. It's profoundly relational. It destroys the relationship between God and his people. We see God's righteous wrath against wrongdoing. So it, it's not trivial, but the other one, which is, I think, really striking for perhaps the people like us in our culture, is it's not individual. Do you notice that? We live in a radical, autonomous, individualized culture, and we think this just seems unfair Surely verse 1 is wrong. Surely it should be. So the Lord's anger burned against him. But it's not. It's the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The sin of Achan has dramatic effects on the rest of the people. Not simply for his family. Not simply for the, the community. But for the people of God. And you see it in the world of the Bible. That sin is joined up. Lives and actions are more joined up than they are here. Implications for families and for nations. And for us, that's true at the large scale. As you read the Bible, we're all guilty. We're all infected because of Adam's sin. We're, we're all in the same boat. We all sit naturally under God's wrath. We're infected by that. But it's true at the smaller scale too. And friends, I want to say it is not simply an Old Testament thing. It is not simply an old covenant thing. So for us, when someone becomes a Christian, that they are united to Christ and we are united to one another as part of the body. And that means 
what one person does can have implications for others. Let me try and give you some examples. Um, think, for example, of uh, in the New Testament, the church to, to Ephesus in Revelation, at the start of Revelation. Jesus says, he says, because you tolerate sin, unless you repent and you deal with sin among you, Christ himself will come and remove their lampstand. That, that's a metaphor for his presence among them being snuffed out. God's light among them going. Because of sin within this church that he's writing to in Ephesus. Think of the situation in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11. People, it seems, dying in church because they were sinning in the way that they behaved towards one another as they take the Lord's Supper. It seems the rich were abusing the poor and people are falling asleep, Paul says. I don't think it's just drifting off in sermons. It's more final than that. They weren't recognising the body of Christ that they were a part of. And they were abusing each other. They were taking the Lord's Supper, but then lying about their relationship with other Christians in the way they treated each other. Think of the situation in James. In James, you find the rich abusing the poor of the church. So James writes, 4 verse 3, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God, written to people within the church. Or think even at family level, 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. Peter writes to husbands, he says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. Why? So that nothing will hinder your prayers. I think that is God will answer prayers. Now, we need to be slightly careful here. I think things are slightly different for us under the new covenant. God has promised to never leave nor forsake his people. He promises that we can trust him. He says that I will always be with you. Now, cling on to me. I am with you. So in one sense, because of the obedience of Christ, we always receive, if you like, big B blessing. We are in Christ. We are part of the family. But having said that, what we do matters. It seems to me from those verses we've just looked at and from others, God does not perhaps bless or, or use churches that are blatantly unfaithful to him. More on that in a bit. But, but the New Testament again and again and again will urge a church to exercise discipline against those within the church who are overtly sinning because it will affect the whole body to suffer. It will bring cancer and death within the church. So trying to wrestle with this sort of tension that is there, and it does seem there is a tension between, I wonder if the, the example of adoption is a good one. Think of, think of this, think of a child who has been adopted into a new family, adopted out of a horrible, dysfunctional, damaging situation, adopted into a new and loving family. And the papers are signed, the relationship is secure. Life is very different, life is so much better. This child is so much happier, so much more secure, so much more whole. But what happens, when, what happens when the child brings actions from the past into the present, repeating old dysfunctional habits or tendencies? In one sense, they are still part of the family. They are still big B blessed. 
They are still secure in their identity. They are still part of this family, new surname. That is secure, and yet they may be disciplined, and life may be hard for them, and things may even be withdrawn from them to teach them, to discipline them. Little B blessings might be removed from them. Which is just a way of saying that sin matters because our lives are joined up and because God looks at individuals but sees corporate. Do, do we stop being a part of the people of God because of our, our sin, overt sin even? No. But might we be disciplined and trained? Might even God withhold some blessings from us because of our sin? I think he might. I think the Bible would say that. That's not something we talk about much. It's not something that we uh, cover much at the front. And even as I say it, there are what-ifs going off in my mind. How are those things held together? How does that security of being in Christ and yet God seemingly disciplining his people in Christ for unconfessed sin? How do they work? Come and chat to me afterwards. And I'm aware different people will hear different things as well. So some of us will have tender consciences and, and we will need to be daily reminded of God's love for us. Jesus has died for you. You are secure in him. You can rest. He, he knows about your daily struggles with sin. He, he sees you as being in Christ. You are loved. You, you are seen with Christ's righteousness. He knows the grief that you face again and again and again when you sin. But you can rest. Because you are covered. Because Jesus was obedient where we are not. And yet there are others who are hardened to sin, who don't care about our sin really. Maybe we need to reflect a bit more on the reality of Achan and, and see what that reveals to us about the reality of God's wrath against sin. His hatred of sin. And where you don't care, be careful. If you're someone taking from the Lord hiding it away, harboring sin, be very careful. R run to Christ. Seek him. Ask him to help you to care about your sin. Confess your sin before him. Be assured that he forgives you. But see that it matters. This is a, a timely chapter for people like us who live individualized lives. And God sees things as far more corporate than we would like. So verse 2 to 5, defeat from the Lord. I know we're only at verse 5, don't worry. The next three points, verse 6 to 9, dismay from the Lord. And it seems to me that Joshua gets about a grade C in this section. Verse 6 to 9, he, he gets some stuff right and he gets some stuff wrong. He, he doesn't know what it is yet, but he knows something is wrong. And so he cries out in dismay as a result. Verse 6, he's there, do you see he's there all day, he's tearing his clothes, his face on the floor, dust on their heads, all the other leaders as well in front of the ark. There's grief and mourning and sadness and confusion, although I'm struck by the, there's no explicit mention of repentance. <coughs> maybe that's fair enough. A bit unusual, but maybe fair enough. We're not quite sure. Maybe he doesn't yet know he's got something to repent over. But then verse 7 is almost like blame, I think. 
almost finger pointing. And Joshua said, alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Why did God bother going through the whole Jordan crossing, crossing thing if then they're going to get defeated? I, what's going on? And suddenly Joshua begins to sound a bit like the generation in the wilderness. Moaning and thinking, well, I wish we were back in Egypt, pining for life back in Egypt, because suddenly things have got a bit difficult. It is a mixed bag because there's that, but then he does rightly plead with the Lord in light of the Lord's own glory. Verse 9, what will the nations think of you, Lord, as they look in on this? They're going to laugh. You've rescued your people only to rub them out. Come on. Lord, this is not for us. This is for you. Your name to reach to the ends of the earth, to be heard by all. And then suddenly, 10 to 21, you get this disclosure from the Lord. The Lord tells them what the issue is. What we found out in verse 1 suddenly is told. And there are two halves in, ten, in this little section. So 10 to 12, you've got the Lord telling them the issue. And then 13 to 21, you've got how they're going to deal with it. Um, let me read again from verse 14, and I'll read a big chunk because I'm aware for some of us this won't be a familiar passage at all. Um, in the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted thing shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He's violated the covenant of the Lord. He's done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua made Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerahites were chosen. He made the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. Joshua made his family come forward man by man and Achan, the son of Kami, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was chosen. <laughs> Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel and honour him. Tell me, what have you done? Don't hide it from me. I can reply, it's true, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them. They're, they're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. It's very slow and methodical and almost terrifying as you go through it. Tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, man by man. Until finally he is singled out. Verse 21. And again, notice the verbs. They're very striking. He, he saw and he took and he hid. Again, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they saw the fruit. They take the fruit, and then they hide from God as a result. It would be remiss of me to, to not ask, what, what sins are you hiding? Because, of course, no, no sin is private. God says no, but Achan sees and wants and takes. But God sees and he knows. He can't be fooled. 
I want to say, if there are things that you need to deal with as a result of this chapter, things that need to happen as a result of this, whether that's confession, whether that's practical action, make sure that happens this week. That there is no such thing as a private individual sin. But God always sees. And the implications of an individual sin may join up with others. If you need to, then bring in someone else. Talk to a friend, someone you can trust. Someone who can walk this path with you. Come and chat to me or another member of staff. But here's Akan. He he names his sin. He confesses his sin. He doesn't lie. He doesn't hide. He gives glory to God. He comes clean. He gives the stuff back. And at that point, I'm thinking, great. Chapter 8. That's that sorted. Aren't you? He's learned his lesson. Now comes forgiveness. Now comes the chance to move on. Maybe have another go at I, see what's happening. He's confessed his sin, it seems. But then the final few verses, destruction from the Lord. And let me read from verse 24. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor, which means trouble. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up large piles of rocks which remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has always been called the Valley of Achor ever since. The wages of sin is death. And where we rebel against a God who is off the scale in terms of his purity and holy and ju- holiness and justice and his goodness. For Achan to simply be forgiven, for us to think it should simply be ignored, shows that we just don't get the holiness of God. But as he faces the reality of God's justice, so God's anger is turned aside. Did you see that? So verse 1 of the chapter, we begin with anger. The Lord is angry. The Lord's anger burned against Israel. And then verse 26. And the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Do you see, sin has to be paid for. And in one sense, Achan's death is like a sacrifice that turns aside the anger of God. The wages of sin is death. So what do we do with a passage like this? I think firstly, we need to hear the challenge of the reality of our sin. That we can't turn a blind eye to it or, or harbour it or bury it or whatever. But there's a sense in which, as Akan was, we are to execute our sin. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Romans 8.13, by the Spirit we are to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Kill your sin, says Joshua chapter 7. 
And we might balk at the idea of Achan being stoned and then burned. And we think, what am I reading here? What is this? But do you see, that is metaphorically what we are to do to ourselves each and every day. To kill our sin. Because it matters. Because God is holy and good and just and pure. So as individuals, there has to be that application from Joshua 7. I think it's important, though, for us to think through corporately as well as a church, how do we grapple with this? I, I think in one sense, the New Testament equivalent of what's going on with Achan is church discipline. It's not a popular topic, but I take it it's a thoroughly biblical topic. If that's new for you, then there are some passages that we'll perhaps we'll look at in home groups, but Matthew 18 is a great starter there. But the basic idea is that people who overtly, persistently, publicly sin and don't repent are to be excluded from the people of God. The language that's used is that they're to be regarded as unbelievers, as tax collectors and sinners, to remove them, to have no fellowship with them. There's a great example in 1 Corinthians 5, a case there of an unrepentant member who who was sleeping with his father's wife, presumably his stepmother. And Paul tells them for the whole church together to do this, to remove this person from their midst. Why? One is for the benefit of the person, because if you treat someone like a tax collector and a sinner, then I take it you are telling them the gospel again. Jesus, who hung out with tax collectors and sinners, doesn't mean we just totally sideline them, but perhaps we treat them rather as those whom we assume they are by their very actions. So the benefit of the person that they might hear the gospel afresh, but also the benefit of the church as a whole that this cancer is removed because sin has a way of spreading like yeast through bread. And there are questions we might have in terms of church discipline. Of course, it's been abused in the past. It's a last resort. That seems to be clear as you read the New Testament. It's after people have been warned and challenged by smaller groups and then by leadership and all kinds of things. But you almost want there to be a culture of challenge where we love each other enough that we might challenge people because we care for them, that we confront them before it gets to a big public thing. The other practical implication, I, I should say, is one of the reasons we have membership at Magdalen Road is for that reason that there is a formal delineated entity that someone can be included or excluded from. It just makes it much more practical and able to do that. If we think discipline is important, and the New Testament seems to say it is, then maybe we need to think um, uh, membership is important too. In a loose collection of individuals, just kind of a friendly family, it becomes very hard to be clear about these things. Said before, but I have a friend who, who says he would never join a church if there was no membership because he knows his own heart and he knows he might need to be excluded from that at some point. The reality of what he's like. So stark passages like, like Joshua 7 must make us think individually, what do we do with our sin? Are we killing it? Must make us think corporately as well. How do we as a family deal with stuff if, as, when it arises? But it has to make us run to Christ, doesn't it? Profoundly thankful hearts with tears in our eyes to our gracious and forgiving and kind God. Achan died to take away the anger of God from the people of God. 
God deals with his anger against his people now by, in a sense, he dies himself in the second person of the Trinity in his son as he takes on flesh. God the Son faces the anger and wrath and punishment that we deserve because he loves us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, I look at Joshua 7 and I realize I am Achan. And you are Achan. But we have Jesus. Jesus who dies for sinful and rebellious Achans like us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those here who perhaps you are hiding sin, who think it's simply private or doesn't matter that much, Lord, might you just give a a fresh glimpse of the reality of your holiness and your justice, your hatred of sin. And might we be a people thankful for Christ because we we see his sacrifice in the place of his people. Lord, help us to be pleased those who daily put to death the sinful nature. For those who, who run to Christ, who put on Christ, who are transformed by Christ, that we might fight against sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.